The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. We have uh, Psalm 26, a Psalm of David. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart, for your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. I have not sat with idolatrous mortals, nor will I go in with the hypocrites. I have hated the assembly of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. I will wash my hands in innocence. So I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all your wondrous works. Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not gather my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands is a sinister scheme and whose right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I will walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be merciful to me. My foot stands in an even place. In the congregations, I will bless the Lord. All right, we have a sermon today from uh, Exodus 32. Once again, we've gone through the testing of Aaron. We've gone through the testing of uh, Moses. And now this is um, Exodus 32, 25 through 35, the golden calf, the testing of the sons of Levi. All right, so starting in verse 25. Now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies. Then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, let every man put his sword on his side and go in and go out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp. And let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did, according to the word of Moses. And about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, that he may bestow on you a blessing this day. For every man is opposed to his son and his brother. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have, got, have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. Then the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now, therefore, go, lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf, which Aaron made. Three sets of testing are found in Exodus 32. The first was Aaron's testing. He did poorly. The next was Moses' testing. He did well. The final note of testing is that of the sons of Levi. What is unknown is how many of them actually participated in Aaron's failure at first. The Bible is silent on this. However, what is known is how they responded to their testing when confronted with the need to stand up and act on behalf of the Lord. They will do well. In Matthew 21, Jesus gave us this parable. 
But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go to work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, the first. A shadow of this thought is seen in today's verses. Regardless of what the sons of Levi did at first, they did what was right in the end. They were willing to stop and evaluate the situation around them and then go about doing that which was right to do. Because of their actions in today's passage, they will be bestowed an honor which has singled them out as a special tribe dedicated to the Lord throughout all of their generations. In the Song of Moses, their deeds at this time were remembered. This is from Deuteronomy 33. And of Levi, he said, Let your Thummim and your Urim be with your Holy One, whom you tested at Massa, and with whom you contended at the waters of Meribah, who says of his father and his mother, I have not seen them, nor did he acknowledge his brothers or know his own children, for they have observed your word and kept your covenant. Each one of us is bound to falter in our daily lives at one time or another. But this doesn't mean that all is lost. What we do with ourselves after our initial failings often overshadows what we initially messed up. This is true in family matters, in the work environment, and in our walk as Christians before the Lord as well. Sometimes our failings may even highlight our successes. And so we shouldn't be too hard on ourselves unless our failings remain failures. If not, then let us use the lessons that we learn to continuously improve ourselves and to do that which is morally right as we walk in the presence of the Lord each day. The lesson of the golden calf is one which still hangs over Israel even to this day. A friend of mine, while reading this passage at the same time that I was typing these sermons, said to me, how could they have done all of this after all the Lord had done for them? After all they had seen and experienced, you have to remember that they were brought through the Red Sea. They saw all of the plagues. They had the water come out of the rock and they defeated Amalek and on and on and on. All of these things were done. And she said, how could they just give up on them like this? And my answer was that Israel is just a microcosm of the world at large. We have seen God's hand do the miraculous both in the world and in our lives. We have seen the ancient promises fulfilled even during our lifetime and yet we fail just as Israel failed. But we can overcome our failures if we look to the Lord and to his honor in our lives. This is a lesson which is to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have uh, three thoughts for you today. The first is the testing of the sons of Levi. It's verses 25 through 29. Verse 25, now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies, the word for unrestrained, which is found twice in this verse, is para. It's from an unused root, which means to loosen. One can get the mental picture that the people were simply loosed, like wild oxen, to dance about in a completely unrestrained manner. They were running amok, and they were out of control. This word is found only 16 times in the Bible, and six of them, more than any other book, are found in the book of Proverbs. One proverb, which fits what occurs here at Sinai, is found in Proverbs 29. It says, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. That word right there. But happy is he who keeps the law. Solomon may have been reading this account in Exodus and contemplating what occurred here when he wrote this particular proverb. 
This word is variously translated here by other versions. Some say running wild, some say out of control, some say broken loose, or were naked, or were stripped, or even unbridled. Those translations which say stripped or naked may actually be taken literally, as if the people had actually torn off their clothes and committed outright indecency. Or it may be taken figuratively in that they left themselves naked and exposed. If so, then their enemies would have the ability to overtake and to destroy them. This is most likely the true sense of this word, as the same word is used in exactly this way in 2 Chronicles chapter 28. Here's what it says. For the Lord had brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had made Judah naked, that same word, and had completely rebelled against the Lord. Now, that sounds exactly like our president today and our state within America. We are stripped and we are made naked in front of our enemies because of our moral decline. We don't know what's coming, but I got to tell you what, it probably won't be good. Judah's morals degraded so greatly that they became naked and exposed to their enemies. And such is the pattern of rebellion against God. We have failed to learn from the past, and we now face the same state of moral decline and nakedness. As seen in the last passage where Joshua was noted, the enemies of God represented by Amalek would be the most likely ones to take advantage of this naked state. Whether it was the spirit of Amalek within the camp or an actual group of Amalekites who could view the open and exposed flanks of Israel, the people had left themselves in a state which was unacceptable. The word translated as to their shame in this verse is a very rare word, shimsah. It's found only here in the Bible, and it means scornful whispering as of hostile spectators, and thus it's translated as shame. It is the same as a rare noun, shemetz, which means to whisper. The idea is that God's people had so degraded themselves that their enemies had opportunity to scornfully whisper about them. In turn, their actions would then reflect on the Lord. To bring shame upon self is to bring shame upon one's God. This is evident every time that a pastor, a preacher, a priest, or a pope acts in a disgraceful manner. The God that they profess is maligned along with them. But this is not limited to clergy alone. Anyone who claims to be a follower of the Lord will bring disgrace upon him when they act in an unrestrained manner. We need to remember always that our actions don't just harm us, family, friends, congregations, and above all, the name of our God will be affected by our own immoral behavior. Verse 26, then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp. In the Bible, the sha'ar or the gate of a camp, a town or a city was the place of judgment. It is where the elders would congregate to decide matters and to determine laws and their enforcement. This camp, despite being just that, a camp was set up as a city with a makeshift barrier around it and points of access. It is certain that there were at least two of them and maybe several points of access from the wording of the next verse. This was probably the principal gate where Moses now stood. Maybe the camp was aligned to face Mount Sinai. Whatever the case, a judgment was now to be rendered at the place of judgment. Verse 26 going on, and he said, whoever's on the Lord's side, come to me. The Hebrew basically says, who for Jehovah and come to me. In verse 5, upon seeing the golden calf, Aaron had said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. He thus equated the golden calf with the Lord, and the people had acknowledged it as such. Now what is happening is that a divide is being set. Those in the camp who were feasting to the calf had set up their standard of who the Lord was to them. 
Moses now sets up the unseen Lord in opposition to them. By standing in the gate of the camp, he was calling out for those who were faithful to come outside the camp as an act of declaring themselves sanctified for the service of the Lord. This is very similar to the thought of Hebrews 13, which says, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Were there any in the camp who were willing to sanctify themselves to the Lord by acknowledging that he is not reflected in the idol, but rather in the commandments which had preceded the idol? This is what he calls out for. Verse 26 going on, and all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. As was seen in verse 3 and at many other times throughout scripture, not every every means every and not all alls mean all. In the case of all of the sons of Levi, it is speaking of a greater portion of them. It can be inferred from verse 27 that there were Levites who didn't come to the sight of the Lord. However, those who did probably came first out of a loyalty to Moses and thus the brotherhood of the tribe itself. This deep-seated loyalty can be traced all the way back to the account of Genesis 34 where the brothers Simeon and Levi both defended the honor of the family against the rape of their sister Dinah. Moses calling for the honor of the Lord then stirred up that same loyalty within the brothers who quickly came to his side. Whether any or all of them had been a part of this feast is not a consideration here. What is being considered is their willingness to turn from the crowd and to the honor of the Lord. As one turned to Moses, another turned, and then another. Eventually, a great portion of Levi had come to his side. Verse 27, and he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel. Moses is speaking here as the prophet of God. There is no indication in scripture that the Lord told him to say this, with the exception of the verse itself. And yet, the silence concerning any condemnation of what follows, and even the approval of it, shows that Moses was speaking as the Lord's prophet. And therefore, what transpires is not to be considered inappropriate, rash, or unauthorized. Verse 27 going on, let every man put his sword on his side. The word translated here as side is yarek. It properly means his thigh. The swords used would be thigh swords, which were small and easily maneuvered in close quarter fights. Verse 27 continues, and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp. Here we see that the camp was set up with multiple entrances. For a tent type of city, it would have been rather well defended as an encampment, and it would have had access points where the people could quickly go in and go out if enemies came to attack them. The verses here show discipline and contemplative arrangement by the leader, meaning Moses. However, at this time, these gates would not be a place of safety and life for those inside, but rather they would become the place where death came upon them through full and unmerciful force. Verse 27 going on. And let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. The words here are given as an all-encompassing command. Regardless of how a person was known to one of the Levites, whether through blood relation, close friendship, or nearness as a neighbor, they were to kill and they were not to hold back. As they are told to go throughout the camp, the idea surely does not mean indiscriminate killing, but rather those who had not stopped their reveling at the return of Moses. Any continued offender would be subject to death. This is certain because out of a group of perhaps two million people, only a very small portion actually die. The obvious purpose of this command is to stay the wrath of the Lord against a greater destruction of life. This is seen at other times in the Bible. 
The zeal for the Lord and the taking of action in regards to his wrath is what saves people from greater wrath. Each of these precepts is seen again in Numbers chapter 25. Here's the account of Phineas. It says, Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to the Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who were joined to the Baal of Peor. And indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all of the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose from among the congregations and took a javelin in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through her body. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel, and those who died in the plague were 24,000. Verse 28, so the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. Of this, Matthew Henry says the following, those who are marked for ruin, who persist in sin, those who in the morning were shouting and dancing before night were dying. Such sudden changes do the judgments of the Lord sometimes make with sinners that are secure and jovial in their sin. What is important to understand here is that a type of amnesty was offered to all people with the words of verse 26. When Moses called out, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me, it meant that those who came to him had been obedient, and for any who had not, their guilt remained. The only people who were actually not guilty were these faithful Levites. All others were rendered guilty by association, if nothing else. Verse 28 going on, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. The number to die in comparison to the number in the camp is, as I said earlier, exceedingly small. Though all bore the guilt implicitly, only 3,000 died. However, it was a sufficient amount to demonstrate that the Levites had been faithful to the task to which they had been called. For whatever reason, and this is why you shouldn't get captivated by one single version of the Bible, the Latin Vulgate of this verse reads 23,000 people were killed. That, along with another Catholic version, the Dewey Rames, both state this without any textual support at all. They are in error, and they need a red-letter correction penned right into that verse there. Verse 29, then Moses said, consecrate yourselves today to the Lord. The words here, ve'yomer Moshe melu yedchem hayom le'yehovah, literally say, and said Moses, fill your hands today to Yehovah. The idea of filling the hand brings to mind that of consecration. Just as when the priests would fill their hands with the ordination sacrifices, thus consecrating themselves to the Lord. The deed of the Levites was considered as such a filling of the hand. They had filled their hand with the sword of the Lord, and they had then used that sword to avenge the honor of the Lord. Thus, their actions were considered as acts of consecration. It is exactly what was seen in the passage from Numbers concerning Phinehas. After his noble deed, this is recorded. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous with my zeal among them so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. 
and it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. The destruction of the enemies of the Lord is called a sacrifice elsewhere in Scripture. Thus, their deed is considered as if it is a sacrifice which fills their hand. In such a sacrifice, there is something which is then returned to the person, which is verse 29 continuing, that he may bestow on you a blessing this day. The opposite of a curse is a blessing. The blessing to be bestowed upon Levi for their zeal will be the distinction of a people who are set apart to serve the priests in Israel. What has occurred here is the reversal of a curse. As I said earlier, Simeon and Levi had defended the honor of the family when their sister Dinah had been raped. However, Jacob saw this as a reason to curse their zeal. On his deathbed, he pronounced these words over them. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let my soul not enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. In Levi's zeal, he had violated the precepts of truth and justice in regards to a false connection to obtaining a blood relationship through the covenant of circumcision. Now, the descendants of Levi had restored truth and justice, and they had upheld the covenant which was given at Sinai by avenging the Lord against their own blood relationships. Thus, their curse had been changed into a blessing. Both Simeon and Levi would still be divided in Jacob and they would be scattered in Israel. But for the Levites, it would be in a positive sense. Whereas Simeon would scatter into obscurity in Judah, Levi would continue to be held in high honor in Israel. Even to this day, the name of Levi remains well known. Nobody. Nobody wears Simeon blue jeans, do they? But Levi's are the standard. Verse 29 continues. For every man is opposed to son and his brother. Of these words, the Geneva Bible says, in revenging God's glory, we must have no partiality to person, but lay aside all carnal affection. This tenet remains unchanged for every person here today. To what point are you going to be willing to stand for the honor of the Lord what will you do if your son or your daughter tells you that they're a homosexual? What are you going to do? What will you do if your brother joins a cult? When will you say, I'm going to ignore this part of the Bible because it conflicts with my interpersonal relationships? You have to be prepared now to stand and defend the honor of the Lord at any and all costs. How high will you hold up the honor of the Lord to what level will you go to defend it before another? How precious to you is his sacred word? Will you stand against your friend or even against your brother? How sacred is it to you, the faith that you profess? And how willing are you to stand upon every precept? What if your life is threatened? Will you still confess? Or in your resolve, will the Lord faltering detect? Be steadfast in your proclamation. Be willing to stand for the Lord before any and all be one of the greats in your generation. When the times of testing come, be sure not to hesitate or stall. Now, before I get into my second point today, it brings to mind right now, because I see uh, Kyle sitting back there, the light always shines off of his bald head, and uh, he let me watch um, uh, God is Not Dead and God is Not Dead Too. He gave me the uh, videos a couple weeks ago, and I watched them. And exactly the precept that we're talking about right now is brought up in those 
those uh, particular movies. People willing to stand on the word and the integrity of God instead of waffling in their convictions. And I got to tell you, the second one, the first movie is always the best. If you watch movies, the second one always turns out to be bad. The second one I preferred more. And I'm going to admit it in front of all of you that I broke down in tears at one point in that movie. I really lost it. And Kyle says he did too. We kind of, uh, or I guess we're a couple saps, but I, I really lost it because people are willing to stand and defend the honor of the Lord and to hold fast to what he has for us. And I'd like all of you to consider that because some of you here today are going to say, you know, my grandchild came and he told me he's gay. How are you going to respond to that? What are you going to tell them? Yeah, we'll get a two by four. That, that's a good answer there. All right, our second thought today, accursed from Christ. It's verses 30 through 33. Verse 30, now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin. After the slaying of the people by Levi, even on the next day, Moses spoke to the people concerning what had occurred. His words, you have committed a great sin, follow on from what was said in Exodus 20. At the time of the giving of the law, we knew that there was sin involved in what they had done. At that time, there was the great display of thundering, flashes, the blast of the trumpet, and smoke. The people then asked that the Lord would no longer speak to them lest they die. And Moses' response was this, do not fear. For God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. They had forgotten this and they had in fact committed a great sin directly against the laws found in the Ten Commandments. The word you is emphatic. You people have committed a great sin. And because of this, Moses' next words are given. Verse 30 going on. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Of these words, several scholars state pretty much what Charles Ellicott states. Here's what he said about this verse. When Moses had, on first hearing of God's intention to destroy the people, interceded for them, which is in Exodus 32, 11 through 13, his prayers had received no direct answer. He had been left in doubt whether they were granted or no. Having now put an end to the offense and to some extent punished it, he is bent on renewing his supplications and obtaining a favorable reply. This is incorrect. Verse 14 shows that the Lord relented against destroying all of the people during his testing of Moses. Therefore, Moses is sent to the Lord is not one seeking his wrath to be stayed. It is a different level of restoration which he seeks. The people had nullified the covenant through their deeds. They are in essence right now cut off from being the people of the Lord. This is what Moses is looking to restore. When Peter betrayed Christ, he received pardon for that betrayal in the death of Christ. However, he was not restored to his position as an apostle until later, there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Israel had received general pardon for their idolatry. They will not be destroyed. However, their sin had separated them from their God as to being counted as the people of the Lord, his representative nation. It's not that anymore. This is the atonement which Moses will now seek. He will now act as the mediatorial priest for Israel. It is the greatest such act recorded of him. In the future, with the construction of the tabernacle and the service of the law, this duty will then be conducted by Aaron and by his descendants after him. That they have lost their status as the Lord's people is now seen in the words of the next verse, verse 31. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. 
after ascending the mountain once again to seek the Lord, Moses begins his petition with the word ana. It is a contraction of two other words, ahava, which means love, and na, which means please. In essence, I beg of you. After this, he does not say your people as he did in verse 11. He says these people. They have distanced themselves from the Lord by the worship of a false god, which they called the Lord. It has removed them from their position, which they had been accepted to in the ratification of the covenant in Exodus 24. As a further stress, Moses says that the people have made Elohe Zahav, or gods of gold. The plural is given for the singular to show the utterly contemptible nature of what has occurred. It is comparable to one of us saying, that guy is engaged in sins of the flesh, when speaking of any illicit behavior a person may have been caught in. Moses has laid bare the situation and now seeks for a sign of mercy and restoration concerning what has transpired. Verse 32, yet now if you will forgive their sin. This phrase is what is known as an aposiopesis. It's a very big word. It's a sudden cutting off of a speech to make a point. One must insert a thought, guessing what the rest of the phrase should be. Normally, the continuation is obvious. In this case, it would be something like, if you will forgive their sin, then great. However, those words are left off in order to make the contrasting statement more poignant. Verse 32 continues, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. The words here are often taken to unintended extremes, even to the point of saying that people can lose their salvation, and this is a proof of it right here. This is not what this is speaking of, and the context here has nothing to do with the context of salvation after the cross of Jesus Christ. The book which you have written is the book of the living. The idea is similar to that of a registry of people in any city. There are those who are alive, and they are accounted as those on the rolls for all of the purposes of the living. These can include school, taxes, being drafted, or whatever. Unless you're a Democrat, then you can be dead and vote. This is what it's speaking of here, okay? In the case of Israel, there was a book of the living for those who are a part of the covenant people. This was agreed to in Exodus 24. The people were inscribed in the book as subjects of the kingdom. It could be even that it was compiled during Moses' 40 days up on the mountain while receiving the details of the previous chapters. To not have their sins forgiven means that they would be blotted out of the book. It would then mean that they would have no inheritance in the land of Canaan to which they were headed. This is what Moses has in view as he petitions the Lord. Moses has tied himself to the people. They are either the people of the Lord or he desires to be counted among them when they are no longer his people. He is expressing his highest desire that they remain the people of the Lord despite having broken the covenant. John Lang details this. He says he would rather be blotted with the people out of the book of life of theocratic citizenship than with the people to stand in the book alone. As mediating priest, he has come as far as to the thought of going to destruction with the people, but not for them. There are quite a few verses in scripture which point to this idea of inclusion in the theocratic citizenship of the Lord. Two of them will help explain what's going on right here. The first is from Psalm 69, it's verse 28. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. And the second comes from Isaiah 4, verse 3. And it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem. 
This is an earthly kingdom leading to the Messiah. In Christ's coming, the kingdom moves into a new phase where the mediator will not just be willing to go to destruction with the people, but for them. In his act, the true book of life is seen and it's realized. When one puts their faith in Jesus Christ, receiving him as Savior, they become a part of his eternal theocratic rule. And this is reflected in Revelation 3, verse 5. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Paul shows us that the state of those who have rejected this spiritual kingdom of Christ is to be blotted out. It is a state of being accursed and cut off from God. In his love for his own people, the Jewish people, we find words reminiscent of Moses. Here's what Paul says in Romans 9. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. In Moses, there is a petition for grace or judgment. In Christ, there is the realization of, through judgment, the highest grace. Paul could not seek the first for his people collectively, and so they are obligated to seek the latter individually. It's a very sad state of the world. In other words, Israel is no longer in the book of the living unless they come individually to Jesus Christ, and that is what Paul mourned over. And someday that will be turned around when they will call on Jesus as a nation. But right now we're praying that that day will come. Gods of gold fashioned with our hands, we pray for them to save, but they do not hear. Gods of gold, it seems no one understands. Instead of life and peace, they bring only death and fear. Lord, forgive our hearts and turn us back to you. Give us wisdom to seek out that which is right. Help us to be ever faithful and true and to pursue only Jesus with all of our might. Let our names be inscribed forever in your book. Through Christ's shed blood alone do we overcome. Towards heaven's riches forever shall we look. To no more gods of gold will our hearts succumb. Our third thought is promises and punishment. It's verses 33 through 35. Verse 33, and the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Cambridge states this, Jehovah replies that he will blot out of his book, not the righteous, but those only who have sinned against him. However, there is the truth recorded later in the book of Romans that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Further, Romans says there is none righteous, no, not one. In Ezekiel 18, it twice says, the soul who sins shall die. It is certain that Moses sinned, and Moses died. Further, Moses could not die for the sins of others. The Bible makes it known that such a vicarious punishment is unacceptable. And yet, we as Christians can rightly make the assumption that though Moses died, he is considered as a righteous saint, along with many others of the Old Testament. And so how can we reconcile these two contrasting thoughts, that of being blotted out if a soul has sinned against the Lord and that of being considered righteous before the Lord? The answer is, as always, that it comes down to faith. It comes down to faith, faith in God's provision, which is Christ. It is what brings us to the throne of God. 
This is why Hebrews chapter 11 highlights the saints of old and proclaims that they were deemed acceptable to God. It was by faith in what lay ahead. Only in Christ is there found one who never sinned, and yet he died. However, it was not for his sins, but for the sins of others. Only in Christ is a vicarious punishment deemed acceptable. The Bible shows us such marvelous truths if we simply take the time to contemplate them. In the immediate context, though, Moses is being told that the one who has sinned against the Lord will be blotted out of the book. This is referring to the sin of the golden calf and the book of theocratic rule, which is to be realized in the land of Canaan. Those who failed to live by faith and instead trusted in the work of their hands would not receive the promised inheritance. This is seen in the next words of the next verse. Verse 34, now therefore go lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. It is the promised inheritance, the land of Canaan, which is being dealt with. Life in Canaan under the theocratic rule of the Lord. Moses is instructed to lead the people there in fulfillment of the promise which was made. Verse 34 going on, behold, my angel shall go before you. There are two views on what these words mean right here. And believe me, this is rather complicated. It took me a while to get my brain around all of what's coming in the next few chapters. Is the angel referred to here a created being or is it referring to the angel of the Lord who is Christ? These words are very similar to Exodus 23 verse 20, which was speaking of the Lord. However, based on the words of the next chapter, most scholars see this angel here not as the Lord, but a created angel. In the next chapter, it's going to say this in verse 3. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. For this reason, it seems that this is not the angel of the Lord, but a created angel. However, the words in your midst are the antithesis of the words of Exodus 33, verse 7, which says this. Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was on the outside of the camp. The Lord was no longer in the midst of the congregation but a far way off. Thus, there is no reason to assume that this verse is not still the angel of the Lord, meaning Christ. This is further supported by the term Malachi, or my angel, rather than merely Malach, or an angel. Only the angel, which is found in Exodus 33, verse 2, is not speaking of the angel of the Lord. This appears to be borne out in the chiasm which spans these chapters. And just in case you go to Exodus 33, verse 2, many translations say, my angel, but you have to look closely because the my in 33, 2 is italicized. They inserted that, thinking that it's the same thing, and it's not. This is why it's so very important to understand what the original languages are telling you, is because God is unveiling something for us to understand. And we're not going to get to it until we finish up this chiasm, which I handed out to most of you a while ago. It's really important to understand what's going on, and that way we can be sure in our own salvation. Because how many people teach that you can lose your salvation? You can't. But you come to verses like all of these, and it seems convoluted, and you say, well, I'm not sure what's going on. It's very precise, believe me. Verse 34 continues. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. The words here in Hebrew read, when I visit, then I will visit on them their sin. The word is pakad. It comes from a root, which means to visit, either with friendly or hostile intent. In the case of this visitation, it will be with intent which is hostile. 
Those who sinned and were spared by the sword will still not find relief. Verse 35 finishes with, so the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. The chapter ends with these sobering words. The Lord promised to visit the people with punishment, and these words confirm that this actually took place. The word used here means strike. It can be in a plague or it can be some other way. Nothing more is said about what occurred in their being stricken, nor is there any note of those that repented and mourned over what they had done. Instead, the verse is left up to the divine discretion of the Lord and to his righteous justice to decide what occurred with each person who sinned. The congregation was spared, but the soul that sinned was brought into judgment. What is to be considered of particular note is the contrast between this account today and that of which occurred in Acts chapter 2. At Sinai, which according to Galatians 4 symbolizes the temple in Jerusalem, the law was received and it was written on tablets of stone. Those tablets were given to Moses, but they were broken at the base of the mountain because of the people's turning from the Lord to a false god. After this, 3,000 people died because of their sin. In Acts chapter 2, we read this. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. There at the temple in Jerusalem, the word of the Lord was again given. But this time it was written on tablets of the hearts of the people, as Paul calls the work of the Spirit in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. At that time, 3,000 people were saved because of their faith in Christ. These two accounts are given to show the superiority of the fulfilled law in Christ to the giving of the law in Moses. One was written on stone and it leads to death. The other is written on the heart and it leads to life. It was a perverse generation who followed after the golden calf, having rejected the Lord there at Mount Sinai. And it was a perverse generation who rejected Jesus Christ and sought to seek their own righteousness apart from him. For those 3,000 who died at Sinai, they died in sin because of their deeds. For the 3,000 who received Jesus in Jerusalem, they died to sin because of his deeds. For all the rest in both places, and for all who have come since, the truth is that the soul who sins shall die. The question for each of us is when the Lord comes to visit for punishment, will it be punishment in us for the sins we have committed in this life, or will it have been in Christ for those same sins? These are the only two options available to man. If our sins have been judged in Christ, our names are written in the book of life and they shall never be blotted out. We have overcome. If our sins have not been dealt with through him, then another fate awaits. That's recorded in Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Of this passage today here in Exodus, Matthew Henry says this, But having that mind which was in Christ... He was willing to lay down his life in the most painful manner. 
if he might thereby preserve the people. Moses could not wholly turn away the wrath of God, which shows that the law of Moses was not able to reconcile man to God and to perfect our peace with him. In Christ alone, God so pardons sin as to remember it no more. Isn't that the most marvelous news? In Christ, God so pardons sin that he remembers it no more. Just what Bob was talking about earlier. The world doesn't even want to hear about sin, but it is a reality which cannot be denied when considering the holiness of God. Today, many large churches are full of worshipers, quite often because the church is geared towards the carnal man. There are promises of health, wealth, and prosperity, but there is no heart for the grace of God which frees us from sin. The sin is passed over. It's not dealt with. It is the rare church which is both large and filled with worshipers who praise God, not for what he can give us in this life, but what he has given us for eternal life. Sin is not a popular subject, but it is one of the defining subjects of all of Scripture. If God simply wanted to plop prosperity down on our heads, I can tell you for certain that he would have skipped over the brutal death of Jesus Christ, but he did not. Today, if you're wanting a true and a right relationship with Christ, I would ask you to come to the foot of the cross and to call out for your need for the Savior. After that, everything else will fall into place. If you have never come to do this, please make today the day. We've already gone through half of the verses of the Romans Road today. The wages of sin is death. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. But there are a couple more verses. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is why we come to church, is to worship the God that would take the time to contemplate the state of man and to say, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to step out of the eternal realm, and I'm going to unite with the flesh that I created, and I am going to take the punishment that all of the, those people deserve, and every one of us does. All have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God. I just can't get beyond the cross of Jesus Christ. Why would God do this? But he loves us enough to say, I'm going to do it. And all of that punishment and all of that torture that we see, for example, in the uh, Passion of the Christ, which Mel Gibson did, was real. It really happened in order to free us from what we deserve. That cross is a picture of you and I. That's what we deserve. And he's saying, I'm doing this so you don't have to have it. Please, if you have ever thought, I just need to get right with God, call on Jesus Christ. If you call on the name of the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Believe that Jesus lived, believe that he fulfilled the law, believe that he gave his life up, and then he came out of the grave to prove it. That's all. And you have overcome. Who is it that overcomes? It's the one that puts their trust in Jesus Christ. And he says he'll never blot your name out of the book of life. It is done. It is finished. Our closing verse comes from Romans chapter 5. It's verses 6 through 8. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Charlie Garrett, I remember the day it happened. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Man, my hair standing up all over my arms reading those verses. I, I just go back to the day when I realized that and I just, I get the biggest chill just thinking of what God would do for us. Wow. Next week is Exodus 33, 1 through 11. As you all listen, none of you should be bored. It's entitled, Everyone Who Sought the Lord. That'll be our 92nd Exodus sermon. And I'll tell you that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. 
Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. And so follow him and trust him and he'll do marvelous things for you and through you. All right? Quick poem and we'll be done for the day. The Testing of the Sons of Levi. Now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me, do please. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him, and he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance as well throughout the camp. Let these words be applied. And let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to, as Moses did say, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, yes, he did say, consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, that he may bestow on you a blessing this day, for every man has opposed his son and his brother according to his word. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses to the people said, You have committed a great sin in your wicked way, so now I will go up to the Lord instead. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin, otherwise you are surely done in. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a god of gold. Surely your patience is wearing thin. Yet now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. Blot me out today. And the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. This is how it shall be. Now, therefore, go lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before your face. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. The debt shall be paid. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf, which Aaron made. Here we are, Lord, really no different than Israel. We are unrestrained in our lives each and every day. It is a sad, sad story to tell, but it is humanity's normal, confused way. Help us to be bold, Lord, when facing sin, to stand against it and to be firm in defending your glory. While the world continues to spiral its way in, help us to proclaim to all the wondrous gospel story. For it alone has the power the lost soul to save. For it alone tells of the precious life you gave. Thank you, O God, for this perfect gift which you have bestowed upon us. Thank you, O God, for our Savior, our Lord, our precious Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. Lord God, we do thank you so much for this this lesson, these three lessons, Aaron, Moses, and the sons of Levi, and they've taught us lessons that we can apply in our own lives, and surely we need to every single day because we're just like them. We get distracted by every type of idol that comes in front of us, and it's never intentional, I don't think. Uh, David wasn't, uh, you know, intentionally going off to Bathsheba. He was just a fallible man who went into her. And uh, then he wanted to cover up his sin, and he committed another sin. And uh, he had a little pride step into his heart. And he numbered the people, and it cost 70,000 people their lives because of the pride of one man. And yet you said, 400 years after he was gone, yet for the sake of my servant David, I will protect Judah and Jerusalem because he was a man after your heart, understanding your grace, understanding your mercy, and understanding the depth of the depravity that he had in his own heart. And you're so good to us to allow us to be forgiven and to cast our sins as far as they are from the east to the west. They're gone forever and ever and ever, and they shall never return. How wonderful that is. Thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ, which makes this possible. Thank you for the promise of eternal life because of his resurrection. 
And thank you for the fellowship that we have here in this church, these wonderful people that are so good to each other and that up, up hold each other and are willing to pray for each other and to share in their good times and their bad. Lord, thank you for that. It is such an honor to be a part of this congregation and to know these people. Thank you for each one of them and help them in the week ahead to be blessed in a marvelous way in their hearts and in their souls and to just praise you and to be grateful for every good blessing that you've given them. Help us to not be ingrates, but to be grateful subjects of yours. We love you and we praise you and we exalt you and we do so in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Now, I can't remember if I said this just to Jim or if I said it to everybody. I said it to everybody. Never mind. Just grab whatever you want out of here. That's from one of our missionaries. And as you go by, maybe grab a couple. And I hope you enjoy them. It was nice of her to do that. And she's one of the most giving people that you'll ever meet. And she'll be here for a couple of uh, Sundays, I hope. And uh, she, uh, she just is, she's the type that would give you the shirt off of her back. And she's given her whole life to the ministry of the Lord, serving overseas. And uh, so uh, if you meet her, make sure to give her an extra big hug and to thank her for her devotion and uh, her kind little things that she does for people. We get the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul wrote these words. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And he would have given thanks over this bread. He would have said these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it and he said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, melech haolam, borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, please come up. Oh, I shouldn't be sitting down. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, my back gets hurting and I just want to get back down. And uh, No, not going to happen. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ.
the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sorry, just put it right here. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't worry about that at all. Thank you. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to have you back, brother. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Good to be here. And you too as well. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Good to be back. I'm glad to see you're not sniffling today. She emailed and she said you weren't feeling so well. So praise the Lord. Thank you. You bet. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wasn't picking on your bald head. I got one too. I'm, I'm okay with it. I know. Don't bother me. <laughs> the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the death of Jesus Christ, which we we remember at this table. Thank you for the fellowship of believers that can come together and participate in this. We might not agree on everything. We may have doctrinal differences, but help us to be kind to our other Christian brothers who are at least faithful in the proclamation of the word and help us to be good to each other throughout the week and uh, to help those in need and uh, Lord we do pray for those who are sick and who are ailing and are going through such trials be with them and give them comfort and we'll be sure to praise you all the days of our life because you are infinitely worthy of it and we'll do so in the exalted name of Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior Amen